Let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We're in Ezekiel chapter 2. So if you would uh, open up to this uh, wonderful Old Testament prophecy. You know, it just th- this is one of those books that it just kind of keeps getting spicier and spicier as we move along. Um, there's just so much th- to be had in this wonderful expression of God's word that really is like nothing else. Many have commented to me how much they enjoy the book of Ezekiel. It has always been one of my favorite books and, and perhaps the favorite Old Testament book. Just so much excitement in it, so many things to really dive into and to really sink our teeth in. And, uh, and we definitely have some of those tonight in a, uh, a spiritual and even perhaps physical sense As we'll see as we look through this text, as you would know, if you have been reading up on Ezekiel 2 and as we move through parts of chapter 3 this evening. Uh, It's on page 827 there in your pew Bibles if you're using one of those, Ezekiel chapter 2. Last week we were brought face to face as we opened up this book, The Glory of God. We saw a revelation of God that exists nowhere else in the scripture. The description of the wheels within the wheels and the eyes round about and the cherubim and and all of the details that envisioned and, and brought forward to us this picture of the glory of God. And indeed it was an amazing vision to consider all of those components. As we discussed, there are some distinctions that exist between other pictures of God, but so there should be for how can we ever describe the infinite God? And beautiful to see that which Isaiah saw and the way he's brought it to our minds. The, the stunning nature um, that was put, uh, Ezekiel, I said Isaiah. The, the stunning nature that, uh, that Ezekiel was put upon his face. He was left prostrate, prostrate as a result of that which he had seen. And we see that so often in Scripture. We, we see that and we understand that same concept with Isaiah where he said, Woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King. Can you imagine being brought before God? I mean, we understand it and we contemplate it and we come to Him in prayer, but to be in His presence, to recognize who we are in front of Him. It was that which drove John to his face. It was that which brought Paul to his knees and prostrate before God. The children of Israel repeatedly having that happen to them. When they come before God for the first time on Mount Sinai. When they are, uh, when Elijah is before the prophets of Baal and the others at Mount Carmel. And the Lord comes and consumes the sacrifice as he does when they dedicate the temple. And the people fall upon their face. And I think we would too. I think we would and should whenever we consider the word of God. But to imagine the fire from heaven coming down and consuming that sacrifice. Whoa. And that's exactly the biblical word. Whoa. Because it is an awesome consideration 
And what Ezekiel saw, as we were reminded of, is the glory of the Lord. And that's a key component. That becomes a key aspect throughout the whole book of Ezekiel. It was the Lord that he saw, but he specifically delineates there in chapter 1 and verse 28 that it was the glory of the Lord. We remember that's what Moses wanted to see, was it not? When he asked, Lord, can I see your glory? And, and God said, you, you, you cannot see all of my glory, for you will not survive if you see it. Well, Ezekiel has seen some portion, uh, perhaps greater even than Moses, and this has driven him to his face. And again, such a vital element. And then at the end of chapter 1, Ezekiel hears a voice. And just to reread verse 28 of chapter 1, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Ezekiel hears a voice. Clearly this is the voice of God, although not distinguished to us. There is consideration that perhaps it was the voice of the cherubim that were there. Although we'll see as we get into our text tonight that it absolutely is the voice of God. But he he didn't expect this. He really perhaps didn't even want this. As we're going to understand when we see his response in some of our later chapters not far from us. He was shocked to know what had been brought before him. We remembered that he was 30 years old, the son of Buzi, not the prophet, but the priest, expecting to go into the priesthood to minister before God in the temple in a very sterile and clean, white-robed environment. Daunting, yes, but not like this. He didn't know what to do. Well, what occurs is that Ezekiel ran into a very unexpected situation. His whole life had been unexpected, where they'd been hauled out of Jerusalem, taken captive with the second captivity, and hauled off to Babylon. It's an unexpected situation. And what comes out of it is an unforeseen opportunity. And that's what I've titled our message for this evening, an unforeseen opportunity. Ezekiel 2 continues where chapter 1 ended, Ezekiel's fallen on his face. He's, he's prostrate before the living God. This was, this was no secondary vision which he had seen. What I mean by that is there is some discussion, and oftentimes when there are visions that are expressed in the Scripture, we're not clear if the individual experiencing the vision was actually there or whether he was simply there in his mind. He was put into a transitory state where he saw something that God showed to him. Well, this is a case, as we're going to understand, God, or Ezekiel is clearly in the presence of the glory of the Lord. This is not simply a vision which is going on in his mind. There is a physical experience that is happening, and we're going to see that physical experience in some pretty prominent ways today. There's multiple expressions that have been represented. In, even in his falling on his face, in the brief interaction we've had, there's huge humility, just a recognition of who he is. There's a reverence of God, and there is an, an awe. There is a true fear of what he has seen. Just all of these things rushing through his mind, and so he finds himself 
prostrate before the Lord on his face. This was a, a, a completely new detail for Ezekiel. This was nothing he could have foreseen. And there were many unexpected elements that came along with this. And that's what we see in our first point, an unexpected position. An unexpected position. Now let me just talk about the structure briefly here. This is a, a, this is a complex section of scripture. We don't just move through it kind of verse by verse because it bounces back and forth between topics. It's almost a little bit like a tennis game. So we're going to move a little and you're going to have to keep your, your eyes focused on the ball here, so to speak. Our, uh, our first section here, the unexpected position, is going to be verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. And then we're going to bounce to chapter 3 and go to verses 4 to 7 of chapter 3. Okay? So verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 and then verses 4 to 7 of chapter 3. The, the unexpected position. The vision of God has two diametrically opposed components to it there is absolute astonishment over the beauty and the glory of god can you imagine even what we read in verse 28 the radiance of the rainbow fully encompassed and immediately before you isn't it wonderful to see rainbows you know you see a double rainbow or a triple rainbow and you always try and take a picture and it never comes out you know and it's gorgeous imagine a rainbow immediately before you I mean, Ezekiel is closer to God than you are to me. And right here is a full measure and expression in vibrant color of the full radiance of God. Overwhelming. The beauty and the color, it it had to be all that the human eye can conceive of. And yet, in addition, and really in contrast to that, is the absolute fear of being in the presence of God of recognizing who we are. Well, so also these contrasts exist in our first point. The the two positions kind of even move back and forth within our unexpected position. The first thing we see is a position of prominence. A position of prominence. Look at it in the first two verses. The position of prominence within our unexpected position. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. The text begins with, with God speaking. And he says, son of man. This is a a very unique phrase throughout the scripture. It's used almost exclusively of Christ in the New Testament. We talked about it in a message not long ago. The only other New Testament reference where that occurs is with Stephen at his martyrdom. The other time we see this in the Old Testament is in Daniel. Those are the only two places other than the Lord and Ezekiel. And yet over 90 times in the book of Ezekiel, the term son of man is used to relate to Ezekiel. That term son of man has a particular association with it. It is a word that ties together two different concepts. In Ezekiel's case, it shows his association with God. It shows that he is the one who God is specifically identified as the one who carries this title. In Christ's case, it showed his association as God with man. So it was similar but different. 
he tells him to stand. It's an imperative. It's a command. It says stand. Well, the issue here is Ezekiel is on his face because of humility, because of fear, because of awe, but because he can't get up. He is overwhelmed by what he has seen. He is too weak from the vision that he's seen, and he has no strength. And can't you imagine that? Have you ever been scared to the point that you were weak in your knees? You were just feeble in in physical stamina? I have. It's a daunting situation. Charles Lee Feinberg, a wonderful Old Testament expositor, notes that God rebuked Ezekiel's spirit of fear and brought him to his feet. He had to be readied for action. He could have spoke with him on the ground, but he had to lift him up. He had to have him ready to go. I have a job for you to do. You must be before me. God wanted Ezekiel standing and looking at him as he addressed him. You know, I remember my father used to say to me, son, look me in the eyes when you're talking to me. Well, can you imagine looking into the eyes of God as he was speaking to you? Stunning to consider. And verse 2 now turns to the, the first person narrative. Now we have Ezekiel speaking. We've had God speak, and now Ezekiel reflects on what has just happened. And he says, the Spirit entered me. Well, what spirit is that? It's the same spirit that we just saw that was empowering the wheels within the wheels. It is the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit which indwells you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And it enters into him, and it set him on his feet. This was indeed a position of prominence. The spirit empowering him. Well, verse 3 transfers transfers us back to God speaking, and there's another move that goes on. We were looking at a position of prominence, and now we're going to look at a position of pandemonium. Everything switches here in this position of pandemonium. This bedlam, this chaos, this turmoil. It's interesting, as you look that word up in the, the dictionary, you'll see the word anarchy, even the word hell used to describe pandemonium and that's exactly what we're going to see represented in this text and beyond look at verse 3 of chapter 2 and follow along as i read those next few verses then he said to me son of man i am sending you to the sons of israel to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious The text begins and God says, I am sending you. Ezekiel's presence with the exiles is, it's not accidental. He did not get 
pulled out of Jerusalem from his role as a son of a priest by accident. God is specifically chosen and sending him. No, this is the same as us. God has specifically chosen and is sending us. He puts us every day in front of the people that he wants us to speak to. He takes us where he wants us to be. There are no accidental occurrences. There are no random molecules on this entire planet. And certainly there's a bunch of molecules here. And where the Lord takes us is no accident. He has a job for us to do. Well, he sends Ezekiel to the sons of Israel. That's a very unique term here. Keep in mind the context of what we are talking about. Ezekiel is going to be a book that primarily focuses on Jerusalem and on Judah. But now he's talking about the sons of Israel. We know what happened not long ago. Well, some several hundred years ago now, historically speaking, when Solomon finished his reign and the kingdom was divided. And there were the ten northern tribes who continued to be referred to as Israel or Ephraim. And then the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, often referred to as Judah or as Jerusalem. But now Israel, why is that? Remember when we talked about the history of what had happened with Assyria and Babylon? How Babylon had conquered Assyria? What had Assyria done? They had taken Israel, the ten northern tribes, captive in 721 B.C. They'd taken them down with them to Nineveh, into the region of Assyria. Babylon takes Assyria and takes the captives. So now, interestingly enough, the captives from Jerusalem and the captives from Israel are back together by the river Kibar. So the nation, to some degree, is reunited. But what do we see spoken about them? They are a rebellious people. It's interesting that this is the same phrase that is used to denote the Gentiles at the end of 2 Chronicles, the end of the Hebrew Scripture. And it shows the the radical alienation from God. Listen to what Hosea 1.9 says. A very familiar book to many of us. Hosea 1 and verse 9. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This says Hosea is commanded by God to marry a harlot. And this is the child of that marriage. And he is called Lo-Ami, not my people, not my God. You are the children of harlotry because you are so far from me. Well, these are the children who are the children of rebellion. And their rebellion is against God. Feinberg again notes the word rebellion is the key word describing Israel throughout the entire book of Ezekiel. it's It's not a change. That's probably the most dramatic part. This isn't something new. They haven't just become rebellious. They've always been rebellious. We go back and we look at the kings. What do we see? Rebellion. Manasseh and so many others of the kings, even of the good kings, rebellion. We go back to the judges, cycles of rebellion. All the way back to Moses and the children of the wilderness, rebellion. Throughout their time. Isn't it interesting to consider that? If we were God, and I'm glad we're not, but if we were God, do you think we'd have chosen the children of Israel to be our people? I mean, he knows everything. 
He knew all that was going to happen. I, I'm not sure I'd have picked that, that bunch of, of rebellious, hard-headed folks. I just don't think I would have. How about you? No, I don't think we'd have probably gone there. But you know, it's interesting because think about what God shows to us through them. Could we in any clearer way see the grace and mercy of God were it not through a people like this? Is it not really parallel to our discussion that often comes up when we're kind of sitting around a cup of coffee wondering, why did God allow sin at all? I mean, why didn't he just say no? Keep Adam and Eve from that tree. Why not even put that tree in there? Could God's glory be as fully revealed to us without an understanding of sin? Could we recognize his grace and his mercy? I think I find that a stunning parallel. Well, these are the people who have transgressed against God. And it says in verse 3 that, that they are in rebellion and that transgression equals the rebellion. Their sin equals the rebellion. Verse 4 describes them as stubborn and obstinate children. Really, they're, they're marked by impudence and stubbornness. That is, by, by arrogance and insolence and brashness, by just outward pride, and then by great stubbornness. We all know this, don't we? I just hate the stubbornness about myself. You know, beloved, I think that one of the most dangerous characteristics of a Christian is stubbornness. When we get to a point where we look in God's word and we've decided that I know what it says and I'm not going to hear another consideration of it. I had a conversation not long ago with a couple who I think probably are believers but who just will not consider that there might be another consideration of God's word because that's not what they grew up with. Stubbornness. When we stop considering that, or, or when we do start considering that we know what God's word says and there isn't room in our mind to grow, well, look at me, I'm the high and lofty pastor. Beloved, I, I, I confess, I've been there. But I'll tell you, I, I try, every time I hear the word of God spoken, I think if there's a 16-year-old teaching, he can teach me something. Because there's part of this word of God that that is living and active, that is sharper than a two-edged sword, that's still being revealed to me. And it better be being revealed to all of us because we do not want to be those who are stubborn, who are stubborn and obstinate children. The, The literal translation of this is literally hard of face. Hard of face and hard hearted. Well, we've heard hard-hearted often. It's exactly what we see in Jeremiah where the prophet tells us that we need a heart transplant because we are hard-hearted. And the Lord must come in in the new covenant and take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Well, we see, we'll see this description return again shortly and we'll talk a bit more about it then. But keep that heart of face and heart of heart in mind. The end of of verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord God. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. This seems like there's something more to follow, doesn't it? I mean, consider that verse. 
shouldn't there be more? Whenever we see thus says the Lord God, then, there's, then he says what he's going to say. And he tells us, but he doesn't do that here. Why? Why is that all there is? There's nothing further because, beloved, this is just the proclamation. This is instruction to Isaiah that thus you shall say and nothing more. Your words will only be my words. You will say just the word of God. It's not a particular statement of what he's to do. It's a statement of position of who he is to be. This one little glimpse at the end of verse 4 kind of bursts us back into that position of prominence. You are the one who speaks for me. God is telling him that when he speaks, he is to, to do and to be that which God gives him and tells him to do. It's the confirmation of his role as prophet. But there's much more that'll be illumined in our text and in our next messages. So mark this phrase well. All right, back to our position of pandemonium in verse 5. It says, as for them, God now carries forward the pandemonium in which Ezekiel will minister and says, whether they listen or not. The message is not contingent upon the response. Beloved, this is the problem with so many churches today. This is the problem with so many Christians today. I, I I don't want to offend any of you. I, I, don't, I don't want anyone leaving, I, and I don't. There, there's nothing more painful from a pastoral point of view than when people leave the church. But so, in order to avoid that, in order to avoid my pain, I'm going to waffle a little on this. Okay, there's some hard things in here. I've got to tell you all that you're sinners. Well, it might be easier if I just say, you know, the Lord loves you. And he just wants good things for you. And he wants to take that sin out of your life. So, you know, just don't worry about that. Just keep loving him and loving one another. That's a nice, easy message. And I'll just stay with that. No, I can't do that. But churches are doing that all over. But, there's, but it's more than just churches. You see, it's each of us as believers. We don't want to speak to people out on the street because they're going to reject us. Now, now we live here in the Bible Belt, and, and it is a privilege in many ways because we can speak much more freely about God and about His Word and about church. But if we're really going to speak, if we're really going to press people about whether they're a Christian, the first thing you're going to ask after you ask them where they go to church is when was the last time they went? And when they tell you it's been quite a long time, And you're going to know in your mind and you're going to need to figure out how to say with your lips then you need to look at where you are with the Lord. Because being a Christian means professing Jesus as Savior and accepting Him as Lord. Being obedient to His Word. And His Word says, and one of the most popular, it's incredible, how many people go to church so infrequently but you tell them, don't forsake the assembling together of themselves, they've heard it. They know it. Because God writes it in their hearts. He tells them, you're to be with the body of Christ. If you're a believer, this is who you are. And so we we have to come, we have to speak to people, and it's not contingent upon their response. I'm not gonna go look for the, you know, sharply dressed guy in a suit because he's got a better chance of responding to me positively about the gospel. I'm gonna go to everyone the Lord puts in my path. We have to. 
Because the message, just like Ezekiel, is not contingent upon the response. Well, it comes back to the spiritual assessment of rebellious, doesn't it? It says they're a rebellious house. They probably aren't going to listen to you. But they will know that a prophet has been among them. They've had plenty of prophets. There have been plenty of false prophets. We go back and we read Samuel Kings and Chronicles. There's false prophets all over the place. But more so, they will know they've heard from God. There's a a constant reiteration throughout Ezekiel. A constant confirmation of authority. Also, justification and a, a reminder as the inevitable judgment eventually comes. They will know that a prophet's been among them. When the judgment comes, and it's coming, and we are going to see it in the next very few weeks, explained and described and acted out in ways that are a little gut-wrenching. You might not want to have dinner right before you come in two to three weeks, because, man, there's some stuff in there that's it's a little rough. But that's the judgment that is coming. But they will know that a prophet has been among them. And then in verse 6, God tells Ezekiel, do not fear. Ezekiel was going to have strong opposition. It says, don't fear them. Literally, don't fear the people. Fear of man is such a huge issue, isn't it? Don't we all get there? We're more afraid of men than we are of God. He says, don't fear the people. He says, don't fear fear their words, that is their verbal threats or accusations. This was so common, there was so much concern about a fear of man versus a fear of God, the Lord spoke about it very powerfully in Luke chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. Fear of God, not fear of man. And then he gives us a little bit more, a little bit more of of Ezekiel's life in in verse 6. He says, you'll be dwelling among Thorns and thistles and scorpions. Now, now here's where we start to get into our first point where we say, is, does this mean that he's actually living amongst them? Is he actually sitting on scorpions? I don't think so. Now, that's not far, and there is enough possibility. Certainly, scorpions were common to that area. Thorns and thistles are all across our planet. They are the result of the curse. But we often see thorns and thistles being described as that which is... Uh, contrary to God, that which is an effect that is exemplary of those who would reject Christ. In fact, later on in Ezekiel, quite a bit later, in Ezekiel 28, in verse 24, we see thorns and thistles referenced. And it says in Ezekiel 28, 24, And there will be no more of the house of Israel, a prickling briar or a painful thorn, from any round about them who scorned them. Then they will know. That I am the Lord God. So these aspects of thorns and thistles and scorpions, I believe, are are representative. They're metaphorical. They're symbolic language to tell Ezekiel that you're going into a tough spot. This is not going to be a great place to minister. 
I mean, we've already seen that. How many times has he told them about these rebellious people that he's going to be ministering to? That, they are, that they're going to need to know that there is a prophet, that they're stubborn, and that they are obstinate. Well, he tells them him further that he must not fear them. Fear, do not fear their words, which is repeated. Or do not be dismayed. That's the exact same verb. So four times in that verse, he says, do not fear. Do you remember when Paul wrote to Timothy? He tried to encourage him. He tried to lift him up. He knew Timothy was a little bit weak in countenance. And so Paul gave him some strong exhortation on what he was to do as a pastor. I think that Ezekiel had a little bit of a weak countenance. And God is telling him, don't fear. This is what you're going into, but don't fear. You're going to have significant opposition. And then he brings it to a close in in verse 6 there. And he says, for they are a rebellious house. That term rebellious house is actually house of rebellion. It's significant because it replaces the house of Israel. This becomes the name for them. They literally are the house of rebellion. And then in verse 7, he says, Speak my words. Another exhortation to speak God's word here in verse 7. Speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now we have a little interlude here. You remember that I talked about how this isn't strictly sequential. So now we have to bounce down the text as we see our unexpected position continue. This interlude goes clear to 3-3. We'll come back. But jump down with me at verse 4 of chapter 3. Notice at the beginning of verse 4 in chapter 3, it starts exactly the same way as verse 7 ended. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So he We see the interlude confirmed, speak my words in verse 7, and again in verse 4, speak my words. God knew Ezekiel was not too excited about this call. He knew that there could be a chance that there was a little bit of a Jonah syndrome here. So he commands him again, go and do this. Particularly when going may be tough. So he tells him that he must go. And then in verse 5, The Lord continues to encourage Ezekiel where he says, For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, those whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. So now the Lord tells him that he is sending him to a place of people that are not of unintelligible speech. They, they know your speech. They know your language. The point the Lord is making here is that if you had have gone to a completely another land where you did not know their language, it would be hard to communicate. We have missionaries who are in the jungles in, in Papua New Guinea who are trying to create the language so that they can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Creating the language, that's hard. God is saying it would be no harder for you, Ezekiel, if you are creating a language than it's going to be going to speak with people who know the language that you speak. It's going to be a very difficult situation. 
But the differences between those two conditions are negligible. The moral and spiritual barriers are every bit as difficult here as would be the physical barriers of those with strange language. One commentator notes that strange languages are more easily mastered than the spiritual hindrance of an unbelieving heart. Do we not know that? Do we not know that from some of the unbelievers in our own families and in our own lives? They're more hard-hearted than trying to learn a language of a completely different people. Verse 6 goes on and it says, Nor many. Why does he repeat that? He's just talked about those who are a people of unintelligible speech or language. And now he says, nor to many peoples. So it's just the same thing as if you're going to learn four or five languages. You're going to go down into the jungles of Africa where every different region has its own little dialect. And you're going to have to learn all of those dialects. No more difficult than where you're going. You're going into a very tough spot. Learning multiple languages takes me back to seminary trying to learn Greek and Hebrew at the same time. I thought, what in the world is this all about? How can I ever figure this out? Well, I I will assure you there have been many times where it has been much easier to master a couple languages than it has been to speak with some of my unbelieving family. And that's exactly what God is telling to Ezekiel. And he says that these are those whose words you cannot understand, restating the obvious complication. He sent to those who should listen. God's children should listen to him. They should be willing to hear him. They should be ready to take it in and say, yes, there may be aspects I need to learn from this. And then verse 7 shows the reality. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. They're not willing to listen. They won't listen. They won't hear you because they won't hear me. God is strengthening him through this. You know, it's interesting. Ezekiel's name means God strengthens. All of this is the strengthening of God. All of this is this unexpected position This position of pandemonium is strengthening him. This is where you're going. This is the field you're going into. Be ready. This whole house is stubborn and obstinate. Again, those same two words. The problem is not intellectual, but it's spiritual. And hence the concern about stubborn Christians. This is having an unsubmissive and unyielding will. Remember we talked about in Hebrews 2 and verse 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 how the sin of Adam was not listening, not hearing what God had said? We can be the same way. It's interesting that Stephen's climaxing condemnation of the Sanhedrin right before he's stoned in Acts 7.51, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. This is who Ezekiel's going to. This was the unexpected position. And although he had a position of prominence by God standing him on his feet and by God putting his words into his mouth, it was a position of pandemonium in which he was going into. But beloved, where God leads, he provides. 
And this isn't just an unexpected position, but we had the unexpected provision in our last point. And we're going to bounce back to verse 8 of chapter 2. Look at it with me. Chapter 8, or excuse me, verse 8 of chapter 2. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Before we get to the open mouth, there's a warning. Ezekiel is a little weak in continence. He could fall away from the command that God has given him. There's a warning here to those of a softer disposition. It may get hard. Beloved, it may get hard for us. Things have changed a lot in our world in a short time. We talked about the attack upon the nightclub in Orlando and how unique it was that for the first time there was a choice made of a particular group to isolate and attack. And we spoke about how the church was a likely candidate for just such things. Today, today in Scandinavia, ISIS attacked uh, a church. And uh, two priests were killed and, and a number of others were taken hostage it could get hard. We're kind of of a soft disposition. We have it pretty easy. In fact, we have it as easy as any people of any time ever had. We got to understand this needs to be us. We've got to be ready. We can't fall back. So God gave this unexpected provision. He says, open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Verse 9, then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back and written on it were lamentations, mourning and woe. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. And then a hand comes out, the hand of God and extends to him a scroll. It could be a hand of one of the seraphim, although it seems likely that this is the hand of God that is bringing this to him. And there is a scroll that is there. Books did not exist. There were no bindings like this until after the New Testament was concluded. So we're talking about rolled up papyrus. There was a time where there were skins that were written on as well. But we see more things about this Uh, that in verse 10 it says it was written on the front and the back. That technology to write on the front and back of skins did not come until the intertestamental period, very near the advent of the first advent of the Lord, somewhere around 100 B.C. So this was clearly a papyrus scroll that is handed to him. It's written on the front and the back. This is stunning. This is probably a unique occurrence within the scripture because in most cases, if we think about what happens in the prophetic text, God speaks to the prophet, he proclaims his word, and then writes it down. Is that not what happened with Jeremiah and what happens with most of the prophets? But here... The word of God is already written and on the scroll and given to him prior to his speaking it. All that he will tell tell, and what's on there. It's it's lamentation, it's mourning, it's woe. It's not hooray, life's going to be great. It's no, this is going to be a mess and you need to be ready. The main component is the written word. It continues on into chapter 3 where it says in verse 1, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll 
and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. The question becomes, what's going on? Did he really eat the scroll or did he not? Most commentators would say that he did not. However, there are some, and I would agree with the minority, I think there's a strong likelihood that he did eat that scroll. But the component that is most important is really not whether he ate it or not, but there's a clear indication that he was to take what was written, what was rolled out in front of him, and he was to comprehend it. It was spread out before him. It was written on him. And there were these lamentations, mournings, and woes. He would have to read that to know what was on it. And he was to eat what he was to find. He was to feed on this scroll, spiritually or physically. He was to feed his body with this. And then the message which he was given, although bitter as it would have been, became sweet in his mouth. I think that the constant references to eat go either way. The word eat, which is repeated about four times in our text, five actually if you look into the Hebrew, can have the connotation of a, of a metaphor. There is uh, a text in Deuteronomy that talks about the sword of the Lord eating flesh. So there is a metaphorical aspect to that. However, um, the aspects of stomach that come in, filling the body, sweet as honey in my mouth, I, I think that he ate it. I mean, I don't, I've, I've had wonderful conversations with uh, Dr. Will Varner. This was one of, uh, this, a portion of this text I preached in Sojourners a hundred years ago. And uh, we had a great discussion afterwards. First time I've ever had the privilege of being questioned by a superior after a message in front of the congregation, put on the spot. So, no questions publicly. No, just kidding. Bring them anytime. But I, I do think that that's probably what happened. There, but there was primarily this component of digesting this whole text, receiving it in. And then we get to the conclusion down in verse 8, bouncing back again over the unexpected position and moving to the unexpected provision in verse 8 of chapter 3. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. It is indeed an unexpected position. But he's prepared him. He's made his face as hard as their faces. He's made them as obstinate as they are. He's ready to take them on. God is with him. He has fully prepared him for this. And he says, do not be dismayed. Again, our verb for fear, twice repeated. Though they are the house of rebellion. Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you. And listen closely. How does this apply to us, beloved? How are we digesting the word of God? How are we taking it into our heart? 
as we read God's word, how are we considering ways that it is applicable in our day-to-day situation? Do you think there's anything in this word that's not useful to you every day? There isn't. The question is, are we reading it with that thought in mind? If it's nothing more, when I'm reading through a genealogy, I might say, well, I don't know how I'm going to use that in evangelism conversation. And you may not. But is it encouraging your heart? Is it telling you and showing you, look at the perfection with which God details his book and shows me his word and how all things have happened historically so I can have a confidence. I can go forth into the world and I can say, thus saith the Lord. Friend, you need Christ. If you're without him, you're living in your sin and you're going to hell. You need to understand that you have to confess and you have to repent and you have to turn from that sin and accept Christ as your Savior, yes, as the only one who can deliver you, but not as fire insurance, but as the one who is master, who is Lord of your life, who you submit to willingly and lovingly. That's what you need to do my beloved friend. And that's what we need to tell people. And every piece of this word encourages us to that. We too are going to a stubborn and obstinate world. Whether they say they're part of the Bible Belt or not, they need to truly know Christ. And it does not take long, and it does not require any rudeness or any affront upon anyone's social status to find out whether or not they really do. But it takes us going and speaking the word of the Lord. Have we been commanded? Go, therefore, to all the world, baptizing, teaching, making disciples of all nations. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's commanded us to go, to be making disciples, just as he commanded Ezekiel to go. It's as applicable to us today as it was when it was written 3,000 years ago. What an amazing consideration. We don't need to be afraid. We just need to go in the strength of the Lord.